Hello and welcome to Midriff, the podcast about gender, music, and music gear. I am your host, Hillary Jones. So I'm going to try and keep it very brief here today in the intro because there is a whole lot of interview to share with you, but I will provide a couple of quick notes. First of all, about some other podcasts I was on. One is the High Gain Podcast, and if you listen to this podcast, you might want to listen to other podcasts and check that out. So every episode, they talk about the history of a particular guitar. We talked about a Weird Morales Mosrite copy that I'd never seen before, and we talked all about a whole bunch more than that. John and Ed were super nice. That was really fun. And I was also recently on the podcast of our local library with my neighbor, Sean P. Rogan, who is from the highly popular ska punk band, Big D and the Kids Table, and runs a local uh, music school called U-Rock School of Music. We talk about books and media, music education, a whole bunch more than that. I'll provide links to all that in the show notes if you want to check them out. Oh, and a funny thing happened. I held an instrument petting zoo at my child's preschool. So there were about 23 to five-year-olds making loops and playing electronic drums and guitars and a bunch of pedals. Also, you know, it was just, I don't know, it was just total chaos and a hilarious thing to do during my child's last week of preschool before kindergarten starts next week, which is totally bizarre and I can't really wrap my brain about it. So there we go. Last but not least, note-wise, I joined Riot Rhode Island's uh, formerly Girls Rock Rhode Island's Battle of the Patriarchy Rock Lotto, which is always fun and, of course, for a good cause. And I'll report more back about that as it happens. The actual show is in October, but I, I think it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. It's always nice to try and play with new people. So we'll see how that goes. Speaking of Riot, our guests today are Riot's dynamic co-executive director duo, Ricky Davis and Denise Mesa-Repath. They are both smart thoughtful, they're hilarious, and I really couldn't be happier that they are running the organization and helping it shift and grow in just the best ways. We get into everything from Steely Dan to the issues vocalists face to equity and accountability in music spaces. Can I note also that I did not realize that Steely Dan wrote Ricky Don't Lose That Number and that just makes everything more hilarious. So there we are. Anyway, we talk gear. We talk about Riot's programs as well. They're just the best. And then after the interview, I will talk a little bit about the apparently undying question, why are there no boys rock camps? Before we get into that, I want to take a moment to thank Midriff's sponsors. First, Earthquaker Devices. Earthquaker continues to share videos featuring just so many awesome artists. And, you know, they shared one about a very cool band that I'd never heard of called Cash and Sky, and I'm very excited about them. Cleveland guitarist Marcus Allen Ward and Ariana Powell, who plays with Halsey, Olivia Rodrigo, many more. She shared her pedal board, which was really cool to see. I just love that. Also, did you know that even though you can find Earthquaker pedals just all around the world, they are still handmade by a relatively small and mighty crew of folks in Akron, Ohio? Did you know that? all true you can check out earthquaker devices and all of their amazing pedals handmade in akron ohio at earthquakerdevices.com up next i want to mention my buddies adam and jen once again at stompbox sonic in boston they're so great stompbox sonic provides musicians with an extensive tonal palette for auditory exploration 
Specializing in effects pedals, they offer a curated collection of companies, large and small, some locally crafted, some assembled from around the world. Adam and Jen have been helping musicians and sound-based artists find their sound since 2009. By working collaboratively through one-on-one consultations, they do more than sell you a pedal. They ignite the creative spark to bring your music to life. They create a comfortable, judgment-free environment for all musicians where sonic experimentation is encouraged. And they recently did a sound tasting for the fine folks at Fanny's House of Music in Nashville. And, you know, they can do one for you. Help you find you whatever you need. If you are interested in a consultation or you just want to see their cool, unique selection, check them out on social media or at stompboxonic.com. And last but not least, we have Holcomb Guitars. Nick Holcomb makes rad guitars in whatever style you choose, really. Whether it's like wild, beautiful woods or like zebra stripes, just whatever you need. Um, he can make it happen for you. And if you remember my episode with Roz Raskin of Nova One, their main guitar is a Holcomb Custom, so you might remember seeing that. Uh, if you need repair services in New England, he can help you with that. He will literally come right to your door and fix your instrument. It's very convenient. I highly recommend that. And as I've mentioned, Nick has done a number of projects for me and I trust him with my personal guitars, whether large projects or like small setups that are just like a little beyond my ability. And, you know, if you've seen his Instagram feed, you know that you're supporting someone who shares your values, which if you're listening to this podcast, I'm going to go ahead and imagine that that is something that you care about. So give him a follow on Instagram at Holcomb Guitars or check out his website, holcombguitars.com for more info. These sponsors support the podcast, and I hope you support them too. You can find links in the show notes to the sponsors, to Midriff's Instagram and Facebook pages, to the website. Everything you need is there. All right. With that, let's take it to the main event. My interview with Denise Andriki from Rock. Denise and Ricky, welcome to Midriff. Oh my God. Hi. Hi. Hey. It's been so Fancy long. seeing you here. I know. I know. This is Hi, real friends. nice. Hi. 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 So, uh, <laughs> for <laughs> listeners who may not be familiar with you, I'm going to first just say that you two are a fabulous dream team. I've talked a lot about Riot on the podcast, and other folks have as well. And I, for folks who might not be familiar with Riot or Girls Rock Rhode Island, which was what it was previously called, I had run that organization with a bunch of fabulous folks for about 10 years and when I left Ricky and Denise took over the position for me and they are the best and I'm going to let them introduce themselves a little further their name pronouns and a little bit about themselves and their backgrounds with music whoever wants to go first so and I'll start I'm Ricky Davis and like Hillary just said I'm one of the co-executive directors at Riot RI I use they them pronouns I am a non-binary PD Yeah, a little bit about me. I am a musician, uh, an activist, a youth worker, and an organizer around Providence, Rhode Island, which is where I grew up. And my background with music, I started in classical music. And then was like, ooh, classical music. (laughs) And uh, went ahead and switched into rock and punk and all that good stuff. And then I'm currently in a band, which is a gay, queer cover band for weddings only. Uh, Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I don't think I knew that last part. Yeah, we're a wedding band right now. And it is we only play gay weddings. And it's a joy. That's the best (laughs) thing I've ever heard. Okay, that's amazing. 
I want to get married again just to get you to play at my wedding. Celebrate gay love every day. That's <laughs> oh. that's our that's our jam. I love it. All right, uh, Denise. <laughs> yeah, I'll jump in. I'm Denise um, as a read path, and I am the uh, the other co-director at Riot, Rhode Island. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I would say I always have really hard time. Like, what do I want people to know about me? What I want people to know about me is less who I am as my identity and more of the things that I'm really psyched about, which is youth development work. I love sociological research. (laughs) Yeah, I'm all about, (laughs) I'm all about that. And then simultaneously, you know, really hate academia at the same time. Um, Musically, I can say I'm a culturally indoctrinated vocalist. I love that Christ singing style, like that singing that really conveys a lot of emotion, a lot of anger, sadness, grief, despondency. I mostly play guitar and uke. I really enjoy fucking around with drums. I'm not really good at it. It's really fun for me. It's like this huge somatic experience to play drums in a place where I can put my anger into. And I play in a duo called Tall with my partner. It's just, oh, and also our future child who is currently on my belly. So now it's a trio. And Boom. yeah, we haven't really been playing a lot recently because, you know, casual pandemic happening. <laughs> and yeah, just been enjoying music through a different lens over the past year and a half almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just want to reiterate that you two are my favorite and, you know, I was lucky to be able to work with both of them over, how long did we work together? Like, was it a year? Yeah, I think it was a year. Wow, it was a really good chunk of a year. You know, I got a face. I got a Facebook update literally today that I, two years ago today was my last day working with Riot. So Mm. I was like, oh my gosh, it's perfect. I'm shedding a single tear. Yeah. It was a, it was a really cool dynamic to be able to work together like that. Yeah, it was, I don't know, I just, it felt really right and good, and I couldn't be happier to have you two doing this work, and you're making things so much better than I ever could, so thank you yeah. for that. Thanks, Hillary. Yeah. I'm not crying. You're cool, too. Oh, you're cool. <laughs> <laughs> this, okay. uh, we just cry for the rest of the podcast. This is, this is all we're yeah. doing for this the next This becomes the minutes. Affirmation Station podcast. That's, that's all we're going to do today. <laughs> All right. So for folks, I mean, if if folks are new to the podcast, they have no idea what's happening with with Riot or what rock camps are generally. Can you describe Riot and also like the purpose of rock camps or what rock camps are hmm. broadly? Yeah. So Riot RI is a nonprofit that uses music creation, critical thinking, and collaborative relationships to promote collective empowerment and the promotion of healthy identities in girls, women, trans, and gender nonconforming. Uh, and gender non-binary individuals, youth and adults. And what does rock camp look like? Gosh, that is, it is the most fun thing any year that we do. Basically, uh, a bunch of kiddos come in ages, middle school and high school. And over the course of the week, they learn to play an instrument, write a song, join a band and perform live. Uh, Again, that's one week they're doing all of that. It is Mm -hmm. for Ritzy Wild. Boom. What, so what, so that's rock camps, camp sort of broadly and rock camps exist like they're all over the world, right? So if folks are not from Rhode Island, they're in most major cities in the U.S. at this point, right? So Denise, do you want to talk a little bit about some of Wright's other offerings? Yeah, definitely. So rock camp happens once a year and unlike a lot of other rock camp organizations, 
we do year-round programming. And what that really looks like for us is, well, first of all, we have, we have music lessons. We have, we've been doing individual one-on-one music lessons because of the, the pandemic. Typically, we do a group setting of music lessons. We'll do some really funky, fun programs that involved, that are heavily involved in, in the mentorship aspects. We have a music mentorship program. We have a program called Band Booster, which really supports young people on the nuances of what it's like to be in a band, but also that interpersonal relationships of being in a band, conflict, uh, conflict mediation, collaboration, showing up for your bandmates, that kind of stuff. Then we also have a really rad program, which I don't think we hype enough, but it is possibly one of the most impactful ones, which is the gear loan program. And that is we have a solid gear library where people can come in, take out gear, whether it is drums, guitars, we even have pedals that we're offering now, just an array of different instruments for people to jump in and and really start getting into making some noise. Uh, A lot of the times that we don't think of, you know, those boundaries of the entry of making music, but instruments and gear are really expensive. So really being able to offer gear to young people and adults for, you know, a tiny bit of a deposit that will give you back when you return it, a lot of the times at no cost, uh, that feels like one of the coolest things that we do. And we also do adult programming. So we have a adult rock camp as well, which is the adult iteration of youth rock camp. It's a different dynamic, but it's just as impactful. People who are adults and have been told, hey, you're past your prime of exploring creativity. They can really come in and shatter those notions of what it means to, you know, to make art or, or what they consider doing something artistic or even just taking time for themselves. All right. So obviously access is really important. You had mentioned that specifically with regard to like the uh, gear loan program. What was both of your all experiences, like your first experiences with gear? Gosh, I didn't touch any musical instruments. I was a vocalist growing up uh, and I I thought gear was not for me. I thought it was going to be too hard to learn. Everyone already knew how to do it and I didn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot of stereotypes in the classical music world that vocalists uh, shouldn't be allowed to touch instruments. So breaking out of that was wild. And is that that real? Like you were really told not to touch instruments? Well, not like explicitly, but it was suggested. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically, my first instrument ever was my mom. I was, I was having a bad year. I was real sad. And my mom was like, oh, you can't be sad, actually, when you play a ukulele. It's impossible. You play a ukulele and you're just immediately less sad. So she got me a ukulele and it turned out to be true. Oh. And uh, look at that. Because it was so straightforward to learn, it really yeah. demystified the you know, music playing process for me. And it made the idea of using an instrument much less daunting. And that sort of opened the door to me for a lot of other instruments. And you know, now I'm a multi-instrumentalist. And I still have a really soft spot for ukuleles in my heart. Oh, <laughs> How can you not? I feel like it really lends itself to be that instrument, for sure. Uh, I was a person who, for I think I at some point was like, you know, as a teenager growing up in like the grunge era, I was like, like ukulele was not cool. Yeah. And I had to like, when the big turnaround in like the late 2000s happened, I think with uke, it took me a minute to get there. But, I, you know, seeing our youth carrying around 
ukes at camp and stuff and just like independently like just shredding on the uke and like you know creating songs together during lunch break and stuff I was just like oh I get it like Mm -hmm. This makes a lot of sense. Like, you can carry it anywhere. It doesn't cost that much. Like, the entry to playing is so much easier. Mm -hmm. Like, it's on your fingers and everything. I was just like... Yeah, and it sounds good really fast. It's like, the minute you start playing, you can play, like, a lovely little C chord with one finger. Totally. So it's high reward, low effort, which is, like, the thing you need to demystify something is is having it work fast. Yeah, as somebody who was, like, initially kind of a hater, I'm 100% on board now. Yeah, Yeah. welcome to the (laughs) team. Yeah, all right. Cool. Uh, uh, Denise? You know, uh, for me, it was really the socioeconomic um, boundaries to accessing instruments. It was also a cultural aspect of not being able to access instruments. So I moved here. I moved to... Southern California when I was 14 to live, but not with my parents, so with family members. And asking for a guitar felt like a huge thing. You know, when someone's your caregiver, they're not your parents. Ultimately, I don't remember who bought it for me. I think it was one of my aunts. And I ended up with an acoustic guitar, which sadly stayed behind when I moved to the East Coast. And that was like the disappearance of the continuity of my music playing really stayed there, which is really, really sad. And I picked it up like, I don't know, like 15 years later, which is really wild. But yeah, I feel like that's probably one of the reasons why I have a really strong feel about financial accessibility. And a lot of the times that means not necessarily even... I mean, obviously, we do everything with parental consent consent with minors, but a lot of the times we don't necessarily know if there are parents involved in a familiar situation. Um, Mm -hmm. So just knowing that something is accessible to you without having to have a parent who can afford it, um, that feels really important. Totally. Yeah. I feel like access is something that we talk about a lot on the podcast, but it's it shows up in different ways, I think. And but yeah, it's such a huge barrier to entry for a lot of folks, I think. And and even just feeling like, you know, I have something, but it's not the right something. Or it's like, I have something, but it's so poorly set up or busted. And I don't know how to fix it or can't afford to fix it that I'm mm-hmm. never going to, you know, like, I'm just like, well, I guess I'm never playing guitar now because yeah. I don't have a string and I don't know where to get one and I don't know how to yeah. put it on, you know, or whatever. So mm-hmm. all of that. Yeah. So as far as like your current setup, so obviously this has been a journey for mm-hmm. you both uh what's your current like what are you currently really playing a lot now music like gear wise I have I've really fallen in love so I've started to play more electric over the past Mm -hmm. year and that's been really fun for me because I was really into acoustic instruments but I have this Michael Kelly Valor custom guitar that I got through my partner, who's just sort of been like, has had it for a very long time. And I just got attached to it and was nice to be gifted something that has been really meaningful. Um, Mm -hmm. And I am not big on effects, but I will say that two of my favorite pedals that I just like use all the time is the um, Earthquaker, the Westwood, which has that really nice, nice, crisp um, distortion. And then the, some people might call it transparent. The, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and I really, really love the dispatch delay. It's uh, the dispatch machine, which does like that really nice combo of delay and reverb for me. But I, I do still play, I have my tenor ukulele, which 
it's my go-to when I'm songwriting. Uh, it's like my sweetie. Um, and I have this instrument called the Woodrow, which we I got in, in Asheville when we were visiting a couple of years ago. I really love that sort of mountain-like dulcimer sound that it does. Ooh, cool. um, is it, it one of those like the ones that you hit? Or is it a, I'm sorry, a hammer, like a... Yeah, so it looks like, it sort of looks like a ukulele, and it has only three strings, and it sounds, it's like if a uke and a dulcimer had a baby, that's what it sounds like. It's a very Appalachian. I like that that baby. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's it's really interesting, and it has a lot of resonance, despite the fact that, you know, I, I haven't tried to put a pickup on it, but it's, it's, it's got really, really sweet sound. So cool. it makes me want to play like Dolly Parton songs all the time. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got to be on board with that. You know, <laughs> why wouldn't you? Obviously. Yeah. Cool. Ricky? Yeah. So for me, writing during the pandemic, I definitely, my setup looks a lot different than a usual year, but uh, primarily I use a Novation Mini Nova synth and an RC3 loop station, which are I just like plug it right in and I loop it up and then I can do all the parts and make all the sounds with the synth. And I found that really joyful. Uh, My first ever project was like a solo loop project. So it is connecting me back to my uh, writing roots, which I love. And then in my band, I play uh, a rogue violin bass, the BB100, which is a super accessible instrument. They're not uh, insanely expensive and they sound really resonant and lovely. And Is that kind of light, um, lighter on the lighter side? Because the body's oh, not very big, right? Yeah. Light. Is it, it's is a it tiny little hollow? Body. Mm. hollow? Is it hollow? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. yeah, all those so little violin bases. Yeah. yeah. Also, you can knock on it like a drum. It can do anything. I love magical. it. It's hollow. That's fun. Yeah. And then aside from that, those are my big three that I use on the day to day. Aside from that, I just, I loan gear from Riot. I take that gear. I use it at my house. Uh, mm. I make good use <laughs> of that library. So I get to test out a lot of different instruments and pedals. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's nice to have access to just so much gear. <laughs> There's just so much. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like, oh, we yeah. got to play out. I'm going to go ahead and borrow an amp. I'm going to get a big, uh, a yeah. big guitar amp and call it a day. It yeah. truly is a unspoken privilege to be able to have so much accessibility to instruments not just the instruments but like the the setup itself right if you need a pa if you need an amp all of those things are hella expensive mm-hmm. so yeah totally and there's like oh i can pick up these like six pas or whatever yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can test them all out and decide which one you like that mm-hmm. sounds the cutest yep yeah. for sure and no one will judge you while you're picking mm-hmm. this is true judgment-free zone uh, <laughs> uh, I've been going to Planet Fitness, and so I think about that a lot. <laughs> I'm trying to get sponsored by Planet Fitness. Is I, I am. I want a Planet Fitness sponsorship, and I don't think it's too much to ask. I feel like that's you know, this podcast is brought to you by Planet Fitness. That's right. It, it has I want to get. I want to get shredded, and by shredded, I mean my muscles. <laughs> I'm trying to get shredded. <laughs> uh, so as far as like generally with regard to music gear and music more broadly, I guess, like, have you had any situations or spaces where that were like music related that you've had more challenges or successes than others? So like live performances, gear, recording, any of that stuff is, do you have, what does that look like for you? I would say as far as challenge, I mean, I, I actively don't, <laughs> I would say I actively don't monetize my practice. I, like, I don't seek gigs or anything. 
I, I don't. And so that, that is very interesting for me to think about, but I will say that if I did want to do that as somebody that, you know, as a musician who identifies within the Latinx identity, I feel like it would be really hard for me to do so. I see that just right off the bat. I mean, I write a, a lot of the music that I write is this sort of folk rock, rock in Espanol, but I don't necessarily feel like there's a container for it here. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. speaking from just like my lived experience, obviously. I may be wrong. I'm always like super curious about the ethnocultural like analysis of music and like where it lives. Mm-hmm. But it has been my experience that here in our artist, like in our artist community, Latinx based music and the arts are really seen through like this super narrow lens of mm-hmm. what it means to be like following that category. And so it like really reflects the, these like political I- identities. And if you felt to capture, you know, the complexities of what it means to identify as Latinx. So what that usually looks like is like you have to play music that's culturally aligned with this identity. So how we're taught to like be visible in institutions, this means like, you know, like a Latinx bill or music event is probably going to look like, you know, a lot of regional music, um, bachata, uh, things like banda, cumbias, which obviously I love and like all of those are part of my influences, but I don't play that music. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's been hard for me to to find ways to express that through more of like a rock folk based music style. Yeah. Because then when you do, there's sort of this perception that you're maybe like performing whiteness. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really weird. I mean, and considering like, for example, a lot of the um, strumming patterns that I've learned on the uke are really influenced from like the Afro-Latinx um, lineage of my country. And I, it's just, it's kind of bumming that I find, like, I feel like there's no, there's no room for it here. Um, mm-hmm. A friend and I, who is also heavily pregnant, we were talking about, you know, coming together and just like creating this like punk rock, Spanish based uh, music scene. And they're like, oh yeah, but when is this going to happen? Maybe we'll make it happen. Um, which is, wouldn't be abnormal. She's also somebody that grew up in the the Southwest where mm-hmm. you see like the rock and alternative spaces really be led by black and non-black people of color as well. Yep. Yeah. So you think some of that is just a, it, some of it's regional and some of it's just like a general issue with regard to being sort of like boxed in by identity. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't know if it, I, and I think maybe it has something to do with um, some of, some of the resourcing for, our underserved communities who are making music and making arts are being funded through institutions. And so it's like, what do these institutions want to see us perform uh, versus the DIY spaces that are generally very white. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's more of a freedom of how to be able to, to express that. Mm -hmm. Right. So the mostly white funders are, trying to are basically in this space where they're sort of determining what is acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. Like what's cater like what's catering what falls within the category of that identity and what that music and the arts are going to look like. It's a little yeah. frustrating. I would say it's a lot frustrating. It's a lot frustrating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's like it's a bummer that that is I mean, not shocking at all. We talked a little bit on the last episode mm-hmm. about the nonprofit industrial complex. We could talk about that all day. Oh, hell yeah. No. And we have uh, mm-hmm. But I feel like that is like definitely it's it's all related. <laughs> yeah, one hundred percent. 
yeah. Uh, right. Ricky, did you want to add anything related to gender identities, gear, and or just generally related to gender and identities in music spaces? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, coming in as a white trans masculine person is a pretty interesting uh, identity to hold in this music scene, and, and particularly because of the way that uh, white trans masculinity is considered, at least in our area in Providence on the East Coast, a very palatable trans identity and what it means to not present as femme in the music scene. There are a lot of hoops that femme folks have to jump through to be respected in music. I remember I've been playing since long before I came out and I remember playing with this Western swing band that I was in when I was in my early twenties. And uh, I remember talking to the sound guy and saying, hey, listen, I need literally no vocals in the monitor. I don't want to hear a wink of vocals in the monitor. And having him put vocals in the monitor, saying, oh, no, vocalists want to hear themselves sing. And I was like, I don't know how many times I can tell you this, sir. <laughs> I want no vocals in the monitor. <laughs> and then shut the experience of, yeah, shut it down, you know. And now at, at this point, presenting uh, a lot more masks since I you know, cut my hair it's a lot different wearing a, a binder in Bermuda shorts than a dress on stage. So, and the way that sound people treat me as someone who knows what they're talking about in music. And that mm -hmm. I think is, is really deeper, deeply related to my privilege and the way that uh, masculinity and being masculine adjacent is considered uh, a more palatable identity in the music scene and, and how screwy that is. And then also the fact that that doesn't translate to trans masculine folks of color or to trans feminine folks of all types. It's, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a, it's a big double standard. And I think especially in the Providence music scene where trans masculinity and uh, trans mask musicians are, are part of the school kids club so often mm -hmm. it's uh, it becomes especially complex. Yeah. I think being able to speak to what that looks like is useful. I think just for folks to understand, because I think a lot of people just don't recognize the nuances of that. You know yeah, mean? exactly. And that, that is also to say, you know, moving through the world in different contexts as a trans right. person can still be dangerous. I don't want to undermine that. But uh, especially it's important that we're centering the voices of our trans femme folks in the music scene and of our trans folks of, of all identities of color mm -hmm. or in the music scene um, and making sure that those folks are receiving that same validation and, and trust that's being put into folks who hold my identity as a palatable trans person in our community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, we've talked a little bit about general experiences. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences specifically with buying gear, like your best or worst experiences related to that? Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Straight up, my best buying experience of an instrument has been the Riot Rhode Island yearly gear sale. <laughs> uh, just a quick plug-in, which will be coming up soon. <laughs> hey -oh. Yeah, I mean, the worst experience, I think, was when I was buying that uh, Woodrow instrument. I mentioned before, it was in Asheville, is a, their base out of there. And just straight up having the cis dude completely ignore me the entire time while he talked to my partner. And then I was like, here's my credit card, I'm buying it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't seem like that's a big deal. And I guess in a lot of ways, familiarity breeds affinity and so then there were these two cis dudes who were talking about the same bands yeah 
So I don't know. It was really weird. It wasn't extremely what you would call a violent interaction. But as a paying customer, I expect you to treat me like one for sure. But like, yeah, even though it's not violent, it doesn't mean that it felt like inclusive or whatever, you know? Like, oh, for sure. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. right. So it's like, just, I I, I want to delineate that because I think sometimes yeah. people are just like, well, no, they didn't call you a didn't, whatever. Yeah. So therefore it's not that big of a deal. And it like, wasn't oh. an outward misogynist, you know, experience by any means, right? That the weekend that we can unpack. But what does mm-hmm. that mean? Like, what is that implicitly saying? Is that, A, you don't consider me somebody that would buy this instrument or that is experimenting with instruments or your attention is delineated to whom you share affinity, in this case, another white cis person who is a cis man. And therefore, that's who you're paying attention to and creating conversation around something as abstract like an instrument. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Like, oh, we're both these, we're going to bro down about yeah. Godspeed, you black emperor or something. I don't know what yeah, the I, first I, thing that came to my mind, but like, totally. <laughs> you know, and, like, the, for sure. And the funny thing is that I learned rock and roll as a teenager, as an immigrant teenager, through like that lens of like 60s and 70s rock that is very cis male dominated. So, mm-hmm. like, I can get down to Steely Dan 24-7, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, uh, Blind Faith, you know, the usual top 10 rock stars of all times. Like, I can talk to you on Anne about who those people are. I'm going to admit that I couldn't name a single Steely Dan song. Oh, yeah. yeah. You would recognize it if you heard it, though. I, it's I like everybody's dad. Someone's, someone's, someone's dad would play it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I only know sad girl or, music. I'm sorry. Fine. We'll do a we'll do a quick I, uh, I, primer after this. Yeah, I'm a multifaceted <laughs> person. I guess what you, what you can take from this, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> Denise, down with the Steely Dan. All right, down with the Dan. That's what I'm going to say. Yeah. Down with the Dan. Ricky, best worst experience with gear. Or we could keep talking yeah, about it's... Steely Dan for another 45 minutes. It's no, fine. let's not. No, 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 I'm, I'm no, cool. no, cool. Mm-mm, no, I'm busy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would say it's funny, Denise. It's funny, Denise, that you brought up uh, buying a guitar at Riot because that was my <laughs> first thought, too. I was like, oh, yeah, remember when I bought I bought my bass from Riot? And I was like, that was the best experience ever. Yeah, but my worst experience was, of course, Guitar Center. I was trying to buy my first ever guitar. I was like, you know what? I'm going to play guitar now. I'm going to be a guitarist. This is going to be my passion. I was like in my early 20s. I was I was like down with it. And I just remember walking in and there were so many people shredding on every practice amp, like showing off all their chops. And I was like, I don't know how to play guitar. Like, <laughs> I don't know how to start. I don't even know how to plug this thing in. And just feeling really shy to ask someone. And I ended up walking out uh, and just being really, you know, really embarrassed. And I still haven't learned how to play guitar. I play bass. I play synth. I play drums. Mm -hmm. I'm a vocalist. I am too intimidated by guitar because every time I try to buy a guitar, there's someone shredding on the practice amps and I don't know what to listen for. (laughs) Oh, that's a trip to uh to get a guitar or have some some sort of I don't know maybe that should be the thing is like we start this thing where people go 
on guitar adventures in cruise and that way it's like you don't uh, yeah. go somewhere like that by yourself I like the idea of having an instrument doula I mean Ooh, a, yeah. you know what I'm saying like somebody who can support you through yes. the process like this yeah just create a supportive space for you to be able to explore an instrument because it can mm-hmm. be a lot yeah, of it's like I want it to sound like this like I want it to look like this can you help me this is my budgie like yeah. help mm-hmm. me find what I need yeah I'll do that every day uh yeah so is so i i want to know a little bit about how your experience or relationship to gear has changed since you've been working with riot so obviously you've had this access is there anything else any other ways that gear has changed in your relationship i mean i think that my relationship with gear is completely different i i approach it with a lot more curiosity i feel like at this point if i play with something enough i'll be able to figure it out and uh, I'm much less worried about doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a big thing about Riot and, and something that Riot helps folks do. It's a learning organization. The point is messing up and improving over the course of time. And I feel like now, like I'm willing to pick up like a, a PA I've never touched before and be like, I could probably plug this in. Uh, I could Google this. Mm-hmm. I could ask someone. It's just a much less intimidating experience. And a little bit more joyful, like it's, you know, it's more playful. And also it has this great feeling of competency. Like I'll tell one little story before I pass it to Denise, which is I remember one time really early on in my music career, I think it was, I, I was in a group of cis dudes. I forget the exact situation. Of course I was. But I remember looking around at all of these different amps and someone was like, hey, can you get me the bass amps from that room? And I said, how can I identify which one is a bass amp? And this guy said to me, you'll just know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Little did I know that I could have just like, yeah, I guess I would have just known that they all say bass on them for some reason. (laughs) They're like bass pro X, like super bass. Like, so anyway, Bass Pro Shop. <laughs> Just go get the Bass Pro Shop from the other room. Yeah, so not having that like absolutely mystified experience anymore is huge. And now being able to walk in and knowing you can probably figure it out. And it's not about like some mystical knowledge that you're just imbued with by some magical gear figure in the sky. Mm. Yeah. That all of that really resonates with me. I feel like there is a, a big element of shame and shaming, um, as if you're supposed to just know how to do a thing, and that there is no room to say I don't know. Well, you know, when when you are dealing with gear in spaces where where there it's not a supportive space, and if you don't know how to how to use gear, there is so much shame that you just don't say that you don't know. So you're like in your head trying to figure it out. Yeah. So for me, it's like, yeah, there's a lot of less shame and and it's like both less shame and more feeling like I can fucking figure it out, you know, or I, or better yet, I can ask somebody if I don't know how to figure it out. Can we figure it out together? Can you show me how? And I think for me, that feels pretty transformative. And I think that being an adult who can model that to young people feels, feels pretty good. Well, I think, 
you said youth, but I think even with adults, right? Like adults True. coming mm-hmm. to programming have that as well, which is interesting. But it's nice to see youth having that experience, you know, younger. So they don't have mm-hmm. all those times where they're like going into Guitar Center or whatever, yeah. feeling like they can't, ha- you know, having the experience that Ricky had. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's not so much creating an environment where they would like know everything about gear so that the thing can go in, into a guitar center and feel like you're not going to fuck with me because when I know what I'm talking about, which that's also okay. We want them to have a specific skill set where they, you know, there's that autonomy and, and self-efficacy to be able to di- differentiate amongst like what kind of gear you need. But it's more of like other ways of doing gear and relating to gear are different outside of the mainstream music scene. Um, mm-hmm. And you can create them. Totally. Yeah. So you have, you touched, touched on this a little bit, Denise, and you both kind of operate in somewhat different genres of music. And you, maybe you talked, talked a little bit about this, Ricky, as well. But if you want to dig into this a little bit more, mm-hmm. how do you see gender and identities and intersectionality playing out in these different genres of music in the spaces? And if you've been in more than one genre, mm-hmm. you want to speak to that a little bit more, too. Take us off on this. Mm-hmm. So I've been in a few different genres. I started out in the classical world. I moved into the Americana world um, as a Western swing band, like I mentioned a little earlier. Then I sort of scooched into that like solo project synth loop world. And then uh, now I, for the most part, play in queer core bands. Um, So it's been like this very cross genre progression in my music career. And they're very different uh, across the genres. I remember in the opera world, it's very delineated. Uh, gender is very firmly set. There is absolutely no crossing over. That was an easy switch. But it's very similar in the Americana world. I actually transitioned while I was in my Western swing band. I came out as trans. And that was just a wild time. Going from like being like a Dolly Parton <laughs> to being like, actually, I have an orange mullet and you're just going to have to love that about me a little two steppers. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was, that was really interesting. That was the first band. It was an all, it was an eight piece band. It was huge. It was a big band and they were all cis dudes in their sixties, uh, aside from myself as a vocalist, not playing another instrument. And that is this like weird spotlight on gender where you're not really considered a musician or even part of a band. It's like, oh, this is the person we invite up to sing a standard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And the power dynamic is real. It's really devalued. And then moving away, you know, going into like the loop and synth world, that's a very individual experience. Like I never performed out as a looper. I always was just recording and putting it out into the world. Uh, so I don't really know how that feels for, for folks of my gender. And I was like, nobody look at me. Uh, don't look at me. Don't perceive me <laughs> at the time. Me, so it was actually me. great for, for a new gender queer baby <laughs> being like, look at me, don't look at me, look at me. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And then in the queer core scene, that is, that's a totally different vibe. That's like queer folks to the front. The folks centered in the room are the folks being sung about in the songs. It's this really deeply radical scene and uh, with like a really strong focus on safety, which is also really different between these, these scenes. Like in the queer core scene, there's a lot of interest in the well-being of the most marginalized in the room. Um, and especially in like bystander intervention, really making sure that the, the venues are safe for folks who come into them. 
Uh, and that's something that just is not available. Like the amount of people who creepily hit on me in my Western swing band would be intolerable in the queer core scene. Mm-hmm. So it across genres, it, I wish we could all share mm-hmm. that like safer, safer right. scene mindset uh, into the Americana genre because there are still, you know, girls, trans, and non-binary folks who want to participate uh, in those genres as well. And and you don't just have to play queer core music to be allowed to experience that welcoming scene. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the ideal situation where you can. Where we we'll talk about this in a minute too, but the, just thinking about like how do you create those spaces elsewhere? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Denise, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I guess I will add the yeah that idea of being an adornment piece and a and a musical ensemble or as a or less of a musician. Um, my experiences have been as a cis woman who play with a cis male partner. There is that sort of this weird not necessarily a level of protection, but I, I don't think that I would feel comfortable or would even play those spaces if it weren't with my partner. Mm-hmm. And simultaneously, yeah, I, I find that because of what, what I witness, other folks who are socialized as women play within that scene. And there is a lot of homophobia. There's a lot of like, there's a lot of misogyny already within that scene that it feels like you either play along in order to get gigs or you, you don't get gigs and Mm -hmm. I just don't got time for that. So I don't play gigs. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Problem solved. Yeah. So sort of where I'm at right now. (laughs) I'm in the non gig category. This is why we only play gay weddings now. Yeah. And I mean, and I will also admit yeah. that, that, that re- what brings up for me is like, how have I internalized like that sexism, right? Or like that misogyny, mm. because then I find myself being highly judgmental about those folks who do decide to play the game. And, and, and I, I like sort of hate that. Um, I have that this inner really struggle. Yeah. 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 Because I feel um, like, you know, there are no, who is out there? Who's actually causing and driving this behavior thinking? Are they thinking about it? Are they analyzing that what's happening? And like, probably not. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So to, to hear Ricky's experience, it feels, it feels really validating because I have been, I've been on the other hand, not as a performer, but as a, a community member, part of, of those queer spaces and you can feel it. You just, it's, it's, um, it's a, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just a completely different, it's a completely different way of enjoying music, of playing music, of being in a music community that it's really hard to quantify. Well, let's do it. Let's quantify it. Shall let's we? Do it. <laughs> <laughs> what does that look like? So, you know, I have some questions around generally around like building music community, but while we're on this topic, I think it makes sense to list this out like what does it look like what kind of things one might one do in a space to make it have that feeling regardless of what genre of music you're in what is the intentional work that folks are doing to create that feeling in those spaces i think part of it is representation the mm-hmm. folks actually performing it's in the booking mm-hmm. uh, it's not just booking of the the cool kids club every day it's finding new bands who are uh, more representative of the community that's going to be in the audience 
and making sure that their voices are highlighted. I think that's a big part. And not just in the audience, but who you would, you know, want to have access, be able to access the, be able to access the audience, them. right? Right. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Who's not at the table? Who's right. not in the audience? Who, like, if they came by and they saw that, like, maybe, you know, this whoever was on stage wasn't representing them, they'd see that and they'd be like, oh, this person does actually speak to me in this way. And I do feel comfortable mm-hmm. here because of that. Right. It's like, if you can't see it, you can't be it. You know, it's that, that sort of if you want to see more representation of folks in the music industry and have like a more welcoming community, then mm-hmm. it has to start somewhere. Uh, you have to invite folks into it and make sure that the people who are on stage who are actually using their voices are, I would even say the folks you're not seeing. Yeah. I mean like that feels like an ideal environment for music playing. I would even say the bare minimum sometimes is like, is this all we can get, you know, bare minimum where, venues are very intentional about like what's not what's expect like social behavior like what's expected what not what is not acceptable like you can't come up in the stage and touch people number one you can't be that drunk guy in the corner harassing someone it's just that accountability piece that is really and we've had a lot of conversations about this what does accountability look like when is a space where music is being made and then that 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 piece of there's always most of the times and and these sort of mainstream spaces where music is being played there's usually alcohol involved so that changes mm-hmm. a lot of changes all the dynamics right i was just about to say that denise like yeah. having alcohol free spaces mm-hmm. is so important and i think like i'll speak from a queer perspective alcohol has been really leveraged against queer folks i know that the really only queer spaces that are available at this point are clubs, which are run through mm-hmm. drinking. Yeah. Uh, and drinking culture is not the only way to connect with other folks. And ideally it won't be. Uh, so really creating spaces that can run without alcohol. That's the dream. <laughs> and it's like, alcohol is so closely connected to all of the harassment we're seeing in venues. Like, why do we keep serving it? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't want to demonize, I don't want to demonize, like using alcohol like I I don't want to be a fundamentalist about anything like only this and no for sure and I and I, I hear you I, I want I guess what I'm saying is like I wish there were option more options right that's exactly what you can I mean. you don't have to be you don't, you can still be a trash person without drinking all the right. way and I think that's the thing is like it's so it's you know having alcohol free spaces is an option ensuring that folks are drinking responsibly in the spaces mm-hmm. that they are that it is available making sure that someone or hopefully having options where some you know we're in capitalism obviously unfortunately a lot of the times the only way that a venue can stay open is through yeah. sales like so it's yeah. like this complicated situation um, for, for but, sure and then I guess it just also brings to mind for me like especially for women trans and non-binary folks who are so often responsible for child care mm-hmm. how are folks going to be able to bring their kids to the space like there needs right. to be some places yeah. where their kiddos are allowed and, and are cared for in those spaces. And for sure. That really so. tells you a lot about, you know, when you're even right now, I feel like the, the music events we've had when we thought this was going to be a hot back summer uh, a month ago have been outdoor concerts or shows or whatever. And it really, it gives you a perspective of like who really is welcome in a space, you know, whether it's a space that is accessible, not accessible, a space where there's no, clear guidance of like you can't smoke here because there's gonna there's gonna be children or like 
you know, I was standing there being pregnant and someone's like smoking right next to me. And I'm like, bro, I'm not dying. I'm just pregnant. And I also want to listen to this music, but I can mm-hmm. because you're smoking in my face. Yeah. And, and it just tells you a lot about the intentionality and who's important and who's priority, whose needs are prioritized in spaces, which ultimately make it so that other people are like, you know what, well, then I won't go. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, all right. So getting more into some gear stuff here, what is something gear related that you've learned that you feel proud of? I can jump in. I've recently gotten really marginally, I should say, good at using the metronome. Mm. And it was really hard for me in the beginning. It was really frustrating. And I think it was a psychological aspect of wanting to reject any rigidity within a creative practice. I was like, that feels like white supremacy to me. Don't tell me, don't tell me how to keep (laughs) me for measure. (laughs) Exactly. Don't tell me what time it is. Yeah. Um, But it was really cool to rediscover that through another lens and how it can actually really support my music practice and playing with other people, with other people and Mm. not just with what I hear in my head. It was really both. It was humbling. It was a humbling experience (laughs) and it was a practical skill that I feel really proud of. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. I like thinking about that as a piece of gear. That's awesome. Thank you. Ricky? Yeah. I think for me, I am most proud of figuring out my loop pedal. I love my loop pedal. I feel like loop pedals are so scary when you first meet them. And then, I, I mean, I love my RC3. I find it really easy to use and it's, it's tiny. It's like, you know, like regular <laughs> pedal size. What's that? Little, the, is that the little red buddy? Yeah. It's a little it's like red buddy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it doesn't, ha- it doesn't do all that much. Like it's not a very complicated to use tool, but it does what it does really effectively. And I think learning how to use that made writing on my own way more accessible Mm-hmm. That's nice. Yeah. I feel like loop pedals are just, they're such a, they can be such a challenge, but the payoff is really big. So related to gear, like what is, what's something that you, you know, you want to know more about, about gear, like, or something, a gear dream that has yet to been realized? I think for me, it's experimenting more with vocal pedals. My oldest instrument, all of our oldest instruments. <laughs> wow. I got deep really fast. <laughs> Ooh, super deep. Uh, is is vocals and and I have this like very strong desire to uh, Phoebe Bridgeify pop songs as okay. I call it like making them all like spooky and breathy and like sad super sad and I feel like you really need to play with a bunch of vocal pedals to like actually mm. get that vibe and uh, I'm just on that train would um, experimenting would auto tune do any of those things. You know, my, it, it doesn't, my mm-hmm. uh, current synth does auto-tune my voice for yeah. me, which is super fun. Yeah. But it, it's a bit of a different vibe. I, yeah. It's like something about like the reverb and delay mix. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I you have you. to get the right reverb delay situation. I'm all about that. that. Yeah. That ghosty sound. But I just have no idea what it is. So that's my, that's, that's next yeah. on my docket. Is it a plate Ooh. reverb maybe? Mm. Who the heck knows? Who the heck I'll knows? Google that. Why don't you just text Phoebe and ask her? Hey, hey, buddy. Hey, my close and personal friend. That's pretty legitimate. I did actually the other day. 
just like randomly sent an email to Kimia Dawson, just being like, I have a question about your music. <laughs> I did not hear back, but I thought it, you know, it's worth giving it a shot. I love that. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Can you tell us what the question was? Was it related to gear or was it related, related to writing or about a song? It was related lyric? to, it was related to writing. It was uh, actually for my mentee at Riot who mm. looks up to Kenya Dawson. Oh, that's um, really nice. Asking what the writing process was. That's Aww. awesome. I love that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I want to, uh, the final question, and this, you can take it however you want. Like, so we've talked about this in a couple of different ways already is like, if you're speaking to folks in the music industry broadly, so whoever you want to, maybe it's folks in other bands, maybe it's like, you know, gear folks, venue owners, whatever, who want to make change. And they reached out to you and they're like, Hey, we want to make change. What, what should we do? What would you tell them? I would say that change and economic interests are not necessarily mutually exclusive because I know that that's a big fear making changes mm -hmm. and preset industries and to, to hire more, more folks. If you don't know how to do it, that's okay. You don't have to, you can hire folks who can walk you through a process of analyzing how you're missing the mark and how you're really missing on some, some Dallas on getting, on being, you know, inclusive and being more intentional. Yeah. I mean, that's what I would say. Hire mm -hmm. people who can really support you through that process. And it's okay not to know. Yeah. Yeah. I like the idea of like, you know, yeah. If you, if you don't know, you don't know you, if you did know, you probably would yeah. have done it already. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. It, it sort of makes yeah. me think of, um, this is kind of relevant because it's media, but, uh, what effects did, um, and they're changing when they did um, some demo demographic studies of the representation of the shows and the media that they were that they were putting out there. And they just that's it. You just go out there and you hire women, trans and non-binary individuals, people of color. And it that's just what it is. Like, it's not it's not rocket science. It can be done. But cool. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I think for me, what I would say is it's time to challenge your notion of talent. Uh, the reason that people play music and engage in music isn't just to listen to shredding and to, to like highly skilled or talented people. I know that when we've talked to the kids at our organization, like we recently did a round table with our youth and we asked, like, why do you participate in these programs? Not a single one said, I want to learn how to be a rock star. They all said, I want to have community. I want to feel good mm -hmm. in this space. And I think that's why people go to shows in large part. They want to find a crew. They want to bond over something that they're watching together. And I think that that's really undervalued in the way that people approach music, uh, the way that sponsorships get handed out, the way that folks get booked. Uh, it's really more about creating uh, a community of people who want to come together and support each other. And, and I think that that's missing and it's, it is needed particularly now that everyone is so isolated post-pandemic or during now that we're in a pandemic, it's, it's time to, to refocus on the community aspect of music and, and community music making. Totally. Yeah. It seems like extra important right now mm -hmm. to think about how it has been working well and how it hasn't and thinking about what the outcomes of music are, like what are people coming to music for? And I think mm -hmm. we talked about this already, but I think it's, you know, recognizing that community is a big part of it. Yeah. yeah. If you're not doing that, then you're messing up. Yeah, exactly. All right. So 
we're we're coming to a close here, which I'm very sad about. But I do want to know. I know I'm crying. I'm crying. Uh, what, I'm frowning. I know I'm frown crying. <laughs> what else is coming up for you, both individually for Riot? What's happening? How? What's coming up? Yeah. So for Riot, which I'll start with. We've got registration opening up shortly for our individual music lessons, our group music lessons, and our music mentorship program. We have our Battle of the Patriarchy coming up on October 30th. It's going to be very spooky Halloween-themed fundraiser for the organization. It is a rock lotto fundraiser, sort of like a Battle of the Bands, where women trans and non-binary adults join bands with people they've ideally never met before and just try to make music together over the course of about 10 weeks in order to perform at a big fundraising event. And they, over the course of time, will fundraise for the organization and raise some money for the youth programs in our Creative Scholarship Fund. Cool. Thank you. Do you want to add anything, Denise? And then maybe after that, we'll do any individual stuff coming up? I would say individual stuff coming up for me is, yeah, I'll be taking a leave of absence from work for about six months to be a parent. I'm really psyched about that. I don't know what that's going to mean for my creative practice, for my work, but I am psyched to figure it out and to make sure that I am carving a space to ensure that doesn't get muddled and the nuances of what it means to be a new parent as somebody who, you know, is a cis woman. Cause there's, there's just a lot there. And I'm, I'm really curious about how to tap into sources of support and, you know, wisdom from other people who have done it. So I'm always really open to have those conversations with other people, whether it is about domestic labor, kid raising, being able to still play music, be creative and then be exhausted. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I think people don't think about how those things are related. You're like, oh, well, if you don't help at home, then there's not time for me to go out and play music with my band or whatever the thing might be, like however yeah. that looks. And obviously, if you're in a band with your partner, that's a whole different situation. But like, I think that's yeah. a very real issue. Yeah, I, I, I think that with everything, that being intentional and setting up boundaries. And luckily that's something that we seem to collectively be working towards. <laughs> it's like, how do you set up boundaries? And like this idea of caring for our identities and, and not having our identity be determined by one thing that we do, which is like, you know, I'm not just a mom or mm -hmm. I don't just do this feels, feels pretty important to me yeah, during this period of time. You can't give to your child if you're not exactly able to give to yourself. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So just navigating that will probably really be at the forefront of my mind for the next year or so, and yeah. beyond that, eighteen years, uh, maybe more. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's real. <laughs> it's casual. Ricky, do you want to? I know it's fine. It's gonna be great. It's fine. You're gonna be awesome. Ricky, do you want to add uh, any individual personal stuff coming up? Yeah, I mean, I guess personally for me, I am also just excited to be Denise's baby's uncle, <laughs> which is uh, a huge and exciting thing in, uh, in my life, too, and I'm so proud of you. And then uh, aside from that, it's going to be learning how to run this org without you uh, for a little time until you come back. And, uh, and with my own band, if you ever want to get in there and book a gay wedding band. Mm. 
Tender Hooks is out there and we don't even have an email address. So <laughs> Wait, what kind of song? Like, what do you have for, what's your repertoire? Do you want to share that? Oh, I feel talking, like that might bring people in. Yeah. We're talking Ani DeFranco. Yep, good. We're talking the Weepies. We're mm. all up in, we honestly will tailor it to your <laughs> desires. Uh, if there's a gay song you want us to learn, we'll learn that. Hit and we're we'll put you down the aisle with our, our trans boy butts. Uh, <laughs> we have played a, a wedding. So it's happening. See, it's real. I love it's it. real. I want this. Real. Yeah, it's it's really fun. We've got some some songs from Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. Good. That yeah. is queer core right there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be the Edward to your Bella at your wedding. <laughs> oh wow! I feel so good about this. Own okay. It. Yeah. Fabulous. All right. So where can or how can listeners stay in contact with you or hear more from you individually as folks and as an organization? Uh, to contact me, just go ahead and email me at Ricky, R-I-K-K-I, at riotri.org. Uh, I don't go on social media ever, so that's all you got. <laughs> You can still follow us. Um, we're pretty active on social media as an organization. And really, you know, it's just Ricky and I putting stuff out there. Uh, and all of the handles are Riot, R-I, or Riot, Rhode Island, spelled out. And yeah, I'd love to hear from some parents out there who are making it work, playing music. So hit me up. My email is uh, Denise, D-N-I-S-E, at riotri.org. Awesome. And where can they find Tall? You can find Tall on Facebook. Uh, it's Tall, T-A-L-L. Yeah, I think we're just on Facebook right now because we're middle-aged. <laughs> so that's Perfect. our joke. <laughs> Ricky, do you have social media for, for this project yet or no? We I mean, have nothing. Not you, we're, but like one. One being your band. <laughs> we don't. Okay, got it. No, we're we're word of mouth only. Wow, it's so exclusive. That's we're so exclusive. exclusive. But but if you really want, you can email me at R-I-K-K-I-R-O-U, Ricky <laughs> at gmail.com. And I will I would like uh, get for you to share like together. I would like for you to share like 17 more emails and that's just all of your contact. <laughs> yeah, you can email my my roller derby email at retrorocket321 at gmail. <laughs> cool. My uh my first AIM horses <laughs> <Yes>. unlimited. unlimited. <laughs> My personal favorite, Horses Unlimited. Not to be confused. Can you start a band called Horses, Horses Unlimited? Unlimited yeah. Oh, man, that would be a great band. Um, wow. Wow. Well, we've got some work to do, I think. You know. <laughs> all right. Cool. Thank you all so much. I love you both. Uh, and I really appreciate you taking the time to hang out and share your uh, wisdom with the crew. Um, and by the crew, I mean fabulous listeners. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It's been such a joy. Thanks to you and thank you to the listeners. Yay. Thanks to the listeners who really are out there supporting. And I couldn't be more proud of how, what a big deal this podcast is. And I feel like I'm partly one of those people who've been, hey, have you listened to this podcast? It's great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, I feel really happy. So awesome. All right. Well, I will hopefully see you all very, very soon. Bye. Bye. I feel so lucky to know Denise and Ricky, and I'm so glad that you all got to hear from them as well. And I really just am so proud of both of them and what they've achieved with Riot, especially in such a challenging time. 
it's been wild. And, you know, of course, as mentioned, there are links to Riot in the show notes, everything you need there. And if you aren't local to Rhode Island, I highly recommend you check out your local camp and volunteer, participate, donate, uh, gear, money, whatever you can, or otherwise get involved. So bringing things back to Riot and to camps, I want to address an issue that I've been asked about so many times that I honestly can't count. So when I met a stranger and the topic turns to riot and to rock camps, a question I would often get and oftentimes still get is, why are there no boys rock camps? And this would come from parents, from cis boys themselves, from cis men in the industry. I've addressed it here and there. You know, in the past, I, I've discussed it in other interviews and specifically uh, in my interview with Reba Mitchell, episode seven, if you want to check that out, uh, that was addressed pretty specifically as well. But I want to, you know, talk a little bit more about that here because I think that like really like laying it out is important. So first of all, let's address what rock camps are. So Girls Rock Camps and their festival friends Lady Fests were in direct kind of lineage from the Riot Girl movement of the 90s. And the first Girls Rock Camp started in 2001 in Portland, Oregon, and they sort of grew exponentially across the United States. And now there are more than 100 camps around the world, most of which are part of the Girls Rock Camp Alliance, which holds an annual conference for camps to share ideas, support local or sorry, resources. But other than a shared mission, the camps are all run independently. So locally, Our camp and organization, which was originally called Girls Rock Rhode Island, started in 2009. And after many years of debate, the name was changed in 2019 to Riot Rhode Island to be more inclusive in terms of both gender and music. So we've always served trans and non-binary youth, and the focus wasn't squarely on rock music. We talk about rock as a verb rather than a noun, but that was too confusing. All of this was too confusing, and none of it was quite right. So, you know we decided to make a change. However, the majority of camps in the movement still use the Girls Rock moniker, and that is slowly changing. But, you know, all of this is coming out of this Riot Girl lineage, which has issues as well. And obviously, a lot of the ways that we've talked about gender over the years has changed as well. So I just want to note that in advance. So as described in the episode, at camps, youth learn an instrument they join a band, write an original song, and perform it live in front of an audience, all in just five days. So this is fast. At our camp, more than 50% of the participants had never, ever played their instrument before. That is a daunting task with the goal of helping them realize, um, if if I did this, what else can I do, right? Like, it's it, that's a big thing. It also encourages collaboration over competition, demystifying music making, critical thinking and analysis. And to that end, each day campers attended two workshops, which were um, usually some mix of music-based workshops and workshops that were on topics such as privilege and oppression, gender identity, healthy relationships, relational aggression, self-defense. There's just so many more. So it's not just about music here, right? There's a lot more going on. And so that's, that's kind of what happens at camp. So it's music, but it's so much more. So coming back to the name, so despite the name change, the question has continued, why aren't cis boys allowed at camp? Don't boys need to rock out too? And I use I rock out in quotes, right? So the simple answer is that boys have been encouraged to rock out. We've spent plenty of time on this podcast discussing this. And the list of top musicians in every category 
the folks who are top billed at every festival, 98% of music producers, they're pretty much almost always cis men, right? And that's why our camps and this podcast exists. Camps provide a space for folks to try something new and potentially scary in a space where they feel supported, not judged, where they don't have to worry about being harassed or mansplained to. Seems good, right? But let me flip this on its head for a sec, right? So why don't boys rock camps exist? Why can't they exist? In my 13 years of cis men asking me why there are no boys rock camps, I have never, never had a man reach out to tell me that they actually wanted to start one. Do you want to know why? Those camps already exist. There are plenty of camps where you can go and learn ACDC covers or whatever you want to learn. The thing that would make this a real boys rock camp in the same tradition is one that covered topics such as masculinity, handling emotions, dealing with anger, gender identity, consent issues, healthy relationships, right? And apparently no one wants to do that because to my knowledge, and I hope I am wrong, other than a few queer rock camps for gay youth, there is not a single rock camp out there for cis boys that has this model and covers these topics. And you know what? I would love a boys rock camp that covered those topics. As the mom of a currently cis boy, those are topics that I think are the most important for him to learn. Way above like Van Halen solos or a Bonham beat or whatever. And I'm not sure how much of the issue here is that there is like no cis men who feel comfortable leading a camp like this. So they haven't started one or that the question isn't real in the first place. That it's a f sort of a faux rage about the fact that there is a feminist music program and that they aren't invited because they are the focus of everything everywhere else. And I know some folks think that when you separate gender, it also makes it more rather than less of an issue. And of course, the ultimate goal is that everyone of all genders can have equity and respect in all music spaces. But until that exists, there will likely continue to be a need to help folks address their specific needs in supportive spaces like these. And as I've mentioned in the past, part of the reason why I decided to do the work that I do now is because when folks would leave our program, they would tell us what a shift it was to go back to, from camp to their workplace or to the larger music scene. And the supportive of, bubble of camp was gone and they wanted it back. And I wanted to ensure that all music spaces can provide the same level of support that folks experience at camp, right? And of course, not everyone in the world has attended camp. So there's plenty of work that still needs to be done in all of our spaces, right? Anyway, I appreciate you listening. And I hope that if you are a cis man who is motivated to make change, that you might consider the possibility of creating a boys rock camp wherever you are, if this is something that you're passionate about. If you are, I'd love to talk to you about it. Just shoot me a message. I will talk about this literally anytime. So you can find Midriff on social media at Midriff Podcast on Instagram and on my website at hillarybjones.com slash Midriff Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. 